0: In today's interview, I am talking with Deborah Eden Tull, author of Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet. In an age of global uncertainty, this is a guidebook on how to embody compassionate awareness in all of our relationships. We all struggle at times with how to bring meditation off the cushion and into the beautiful, dynamic, and messy realm of relationship and at a time when humanity seems to have forgotten our inherent interrelatedness, this book offers an inspiring set of principles and practices for deepening intimacy and remembering the interconnection that is our birthright. Eden Tull interweaves heartfelt personal stories, sharing her journey from seven years as a monastic in a silent Zen monastery to living and teaching in the megatropolis of Los Angeles and beyond. She includes teachings and mindful inquiry to help the reader connect personally with the principles of relational mindfulness. In a voice that is transparent, vulnerable, and brave, she explores possibilities for integrating mindfulness. And in a gentle yet powerful tone, she covers topics including balance and personal sustainability, sexuality, and conscious consumerism. Deborah Eden-Tull is founder of Mindful Living Revolution and is a Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, an author, activist, and sustainability educator. She teaches the integration of compassionate awareness in every aspect of our lives. Eden spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery and has been teaching Dharma for 18 years. She has also been living in and teaching about sustainable communities for over 25 years. Her teaching style is grounded in compassionate awareness, experiential learning, inquiry, and an unwavering commitment to personal transformation. She teaches engaged awareness practice, which emphasizes the connection between personal awakening and global engagement. Eden draws upon teachings from the natural world and an embodied understanding of animism. She is the author of Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and our planet, and The Natural Kitchen, Your Guide for the Sustainable Food Revolution. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Tricycle Magazine, Yogi Times, Goop, Shavala Times, and The Ecologist. She also teaches The Work That Reconnects, a program created by Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy. And she teaches for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. Eden also offers retreats, online courses, and consultations internationally. For more information about her work and her books, you can visit her website at DeborahEdenTull.com. Hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Deborah Eden Tull, author of Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet. Welcome to
2: the show, Eden. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here today.
0: This is great. So I'm wondering if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in mindfulness and meditation.
2: Happily. Um, I would say that I was most drawn to mindfulness and meditation simply through love of life and an awareness from a young age of impermanence. So a real desire to be here and be awake in the time that I have to be alive. As a kid, I lost my dad when I was 11 years old to skin cancer. He found out one day that he had one month left to live without even knowing that that was a possible outcome so soon. And so after that, there were a series of other losses and deaths. And, of course, I was living in a culture that didn't really have great understanding of how to meet people in grief or reverence for the cycle of life and death. And so I really began a personal inquiry for what is the lesson of this? What, what is the lesson of impermanence and what is the invitation? So, this very much inspired me <laughs> to get into meditation at quite a young age. And alongside that, uh, I was in pain about the state of the world that I was witnessing. Both are a treatment of the environment, and I was very sensitive to this uh, for my entire life. I come from a family with a real love and appreciation of the wilderness. And also, my parents were social workers. Uh, my mom was an activist working with the homeless in Los Angeles' Skid Row. And so that exposed me at a young age to the whole reality of social injustice. And I think my personal inquiry around, wow, how can I uh, transform my pain for our world into compassionate action? How can I? Find ways to be of service? And how can I even find my peace and make some sense of the level of disconnect (laughs) I was witnessing? Some of these questions also drew me to a path of consciousness, uh, which mindfulness offers. And I would share that I was really interested. In being of service, in being useful. And even in my observation of some of the activists that I got to work for, some of the realities of uh, my mom's world and social justice and people working together on behalf of the greater good, I was aware of so much, even in that, even with that intention, so much that could get in the way of being a skillful change agent. So competition and burnout, finger pointing, a real us versus them mentality that's quite big in our world. So this also inspired me to want to find out how to um, cultivate a quality of presence that made sense to me in this world. So what? So
0: what was your entry? I mean, you were very young when you started to have a sense of uh, sort of a yearning for to to know more. What was your first sort of more formal introduction to mindfulness or meditation?
2: Sure. Yeah, you know that's a great question because I think we all have so many informal introductions and experience to right. That's um, right. Relax. Just just being outdoors. Yeah. Exactly. And we we have those moments throughout our whole life. But many of us are trained to see those moments as few and far between, or not our natural state. And it's been my experience. And part of what I teach is that actually, interconnection and and full presence, this is our natural state. (laughs) So for me, after um, high school, I left Los Angeles seeking Alternatives, and I was very passionate uh, about who in the world was presenting or embodying the kinds of solutions um, that spoke to my heart. And so many of those had to do with solutions from the natural world. Uh, The natural world has solutions, (laughs) medicine for so much of what we struggle with, and so much of the imbalance that we've um, contributed to. And so I learned how to, uh, while I was in college, really right when I got there, grow my own food and I became an organic gardener and then farmer. I learned to meditate formally in the Zen tradition at the same time. And I saw so much overlap between the two disciplines, just learning how to show up with real, open, non-judgmental observation uh, within to myself And then externally, wherever I was, or to the land I was working with, just that was so life-changing. And from there, I began to do retreats. Um, I remember the first time that I went on retreat, and I sort of brought my personal package of struggle, you know, relationship struggles, and my challenges with the state of the world, and my own grief. And just through the simplicity, uh, the compassion that we find in sitting meditation in an extended period of time, so much became clear to me immediately. <laughs> and I simply had the awareness that we all have a conscious choice in what we give our attention to, that our internal experience. Um, is deeply affected by this conscious choice that it's night and day what I was experiencing when I was simply present and in open-hearted awareness committed to presence versus when I was caught in the conditioned mind or the mind of separation, which I'll speak to in a minute. And I also began to become aware that this conscious choice completely, dramatically <laughs> impacted one's external world, the way that one interfaces with the world, the level of impact one can have on the world around you. so that when we cultivate presence within ourselves, it's not just that we experience uh, the wholeness that is innate, that always is always here, if we turn our attention to it, uh, a sense of deep, profound interconnection but also that we can be a more transformative, a more helpful presence in the world. And this is certainly a time when we need uh, more transformative presences. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's a great question. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: So that, that's interesting because what you're getting to is sort of at the heart of your book about it being relational mindfulness. That, you know, I think there are some people that, that are interested in mindfulness or meditation because they've heard of all the benefits to you as a person, as an individual, it helps with stress, it helps with sleep, it helps with productivity, all those kinds of things. You really focus on the relational part of it. And I think you just referenced a minute ago, you were going to say a little bit more about the sort of the myth of separation or yes, maybe you could go there.
2: Yes. And uh, just before I do, I'll share that. There's so much information out there in the world now, more than ever, about the personal impact of meditation and mindfulness. So many studies that have been done, and this is wonderful, but we need to be really open and um, aware of the interpersonal, transpersonal, social, societal, I would say global possibility of impact that presence has and that human beings You know, when we drop into presence, we are able to access our natural relational intelligence. And this has a profound effect on the relationships we're in, our workplace, our larger community, etc. So when I talk about the mind of separation, and I'll back up a little bit and just share that when I was 26, um, I had been working for one of my heroes in the field of sustainability and uh, continuing to live close to the earth and to grow food and farm. But I was really aware that there was a missing piece, that as I mentioned earlier, even so many well-intentioned people were getting caught in conflict and drama with one another misunderstanding, us versus them. And I just knew there was more. So at 26, I left my life as it was, and I became a Zen Buddhist monk uh, for the next seven years, which is an unusual thing to do uh, <laughs> at that age. But it was yes, real call, yes. And I knew it was what I what I had to do. And so that was an extraordinary experience. And that experience really helped me to ground my experience and understanding of the full impact and the full invitation of um, meditation. And when I say meditation, I don't just mean you know, sitting formally for 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, it's also about informal practice. So we say that meditation is your training, but your entire life is your practice. And as we look at our entire life, we see that we are relational beings, and very few of us these days, though historically it was done more often, uh, leave our lives to go into a monastery or a cave for spiritual awakening. Uh, Most of us are living in this busy, uh, loud, uh, exciting, often overwhelming, um, sometimes very stressful Ordinary life, and so for me, after seven years as a monk, I um, ended up moving to Los Angeles, back to the city I had grown up in, and that was a, a wild transition, both beautiful and um, a bit tumultuous at first. And it was my question of how how can I help translate for people and for myself at the time the quality of stillness the profound rootedness and in interconnection the expanded awareness the the clear seeing that a meditation practice gives us that a place like monastery <laughs> supports into a place like the city of LA <laughs> and what i noticed was people really needed a much clearer bridge for how to translate some of the simple and more nuanced teachings of Of meditation not into how we engage with one another, so when I um, first began meditating, I became really aware and struck by my own mind of separation. so the constant narrative stories focus on future past comparison uh, it's Similar and different for all of us, but this more superficial layer of thought, which is so um, repetitive and redundant and which a lot of people haven't received training in how to not give their attention to. So whatever um, we're giving our attention to is really operating us, even this silently governing us. And I became so struck by how loud it was in my own mind when I really started to investigate and also how many collective limiting beliefs, assumptions, and biases were there stored in my conditioning that when I chose to step back, investigate, and let that go, I could come from a much clearer place, a place that in Zen we talk about as whole mind. The mind of separation creates a disconnect. Um, I can be talking to you, Elizabeth, appearing to be listening, but really planning my own response or thinking about what I, um, I'm going to have for dinner tonight, whatever it is. I can be doing something that I love, even just in a yoga pose, and not at all connected with my body because I'm caught in some judgment story. So it causes disconnect with oneself. And it certainly causes disconnect uh, with the natural world. We end up not being available to our vibrantly alive uh, connection with the world we're in. And so I remember one particular experience, which was the very beginning of my time at the monastery. And I was in my hermitage, very small, uninsulated little cabin in the woods. Um, This was a very uh, woodsy, uh, outdoor setting monastery. It was the end of the day, and it had been a day of uh, what felt like hard work, a lot of outdoor, in the cold, working and sitting meditation. And I got back to my cabin and wrapped up in the covers and remember uh, saying to myself, this is miserable. <laughs> what have I signed on for? What have I gotten myself into? How am I going to do this? I'm freezing. And just pausing, yeah, people can relate to those moments, and then pausing long enough to just really, really become aware of the certainty with which my mind was speaking, and tune in instead to my body and my actual experience. And in that moment it was clear. I wasn't too cold. I felt toasty and warm. The air felt crisp and lovely and exhilarating. Uh, I felt completely at peace. And actually, it was just my mind of separation t- talking me into a completely different reality. Is that a, a moment you can relate to in your own life? Ugh. Oh,
0: abs. Absolutely. So in a so in a way, you're you're sort of describing the disconnect that. I think is fostered by our culture between the mind and the body.
2: Yes, that's one way of looking at it. And I think it goes even uh, deeper when we really drop into presence. uh, There is, it's not a concept of wholeness. We're not uh, thinking about wholeness. It's an experience of wholeness and interconnection, whether we're in an easy moment of life or a really difficult experience. And that wholeness uh, for me, it's it's home. It's our birthright to feel whole and to know the absolute uh, interconnection uh, that we are part of. So many people are feeling alone in this world. And one thing I want to emphasize is that, you know, in this day and age, especially, there is a hole in the fabric of human relationship. Uh, we're We've come a really long way as a species in terms of culture and arts and transportation and defense. And I feel that we're a bit in the dark ages when it comes to human relationship, relational intelligence, compassion, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. So when I was writing this book and it was such a a fun uh, project, it was really keeping in mind, uh, what people need to remember their innate relational intelligence to remember the power of presence. It's what heals our relationship with ourselves and our relationships with others and um, relational mindfulness that, that phrase, it, it points to both formal practices and a set of principles. There's nine principles that I dive into in the book. Um, that help us to remember uh, who we actually are. So one of the simple definitions of mindfulness that I've always loved is uh, remembering who we are, remembering who we are beneath this kind of myth uh, of separation. And it's been really, really fun to see how accessible relational mindfulness principles have been for people, how much impact, Uh, The book is making on individuals, families, uh, organizations that have taken on the, the tools. So it's been very heartening. Yeah, yeah.
1: slash nBn50 to get 50 percent off
0: so when you we mentioned then the principles that you talk about in your book I think that's a very helpful way when you, you were talking about how do you build a bridge so that people who haven't spent time in a monastery or don't um, haven't devoted that much time I think it's it's a really nice way to help people get a clearer idea because when we talk about separation or experience a sense of wholeness I think sometimes people are like what are they talking about so it might be nice if you if you wanted to pick a principle or two and just talk about how the how the principle can inform um I guess a deeper understanding because for me meditation is an experience something to experience but I think you can also understand it to some degree.
2: Yes, yes. And um, even while I'm talking, you can, the listener can be turning to your own experience and kind of seeing how what I'm pointing to um, could be helpful in your relationships. And, you know, first, I'll share that I think there's kind of a general uh, disconnect where people are holding Meditation, mindfulness, as something you do, like we said before, just for personal practice. And then they're grateful to find some peace, less stress. But then there's an assumption that they can't bring that same peace into their daily interactions their daily interactions at work, uh, with relatives, uh, with their kids, um, going on a date for the first time, whatever it is, uh, with politics. And I really. Want to help people clear that up? It's actually possible, and I'll speak to some simple ways in just a moment to kind of be in the, the mind meditation all day long, uh, to be uh, committed to coming from presence and more relaxation and connections. So, I'm going to name the principles and then I'll speak to just a, a couple of them. The principles are intention the mindful pause, deep listening, mindful inquiry and clear scene, transparency, that could also be like vulnerability or honesty, turning towards rather than away, taking responsibility, learning to take things less personally, and compassionate action, okay? So even with the first one, uh, intention. You know, so many of us say, yeah, I want to be a skillful communicator, and I want to um, have peaceful relationships. But unless we're willing to really take that on as a practice, and to be aware that another part of us, which I'm calling the mind of separation, or that's also akin to ego, has other agendas. So if we set the intention really clearly that I want to use my interactions and my communications, uh, to cultivate more presence, to be open more to connection, then we can see how our ego operates to do otherwise. So as an example, um, I invite people to become really aware, uh, with, without any judgment, with kindness of the ego attachments that humans tend to bring to interacting with one or, with one another. So for instance, um, ego might want to be right and have the other person be wrong might want to get approval might want to be uh, seen a certain way instead of seen as you are uh, that kind of thing Uh, might want to get attention and so when we're carrying those genders or other people that we're with are we tend to not be that available for real connection does that mirror your experience
0: yes no definitely
2: yeah and and just by being willing to hold the intention let's let's be aware of those ego attachments but not operate from them. Much more choice and possibility arises, okay um, The second principle is just the mindful pause, and I mean, I would invite everyone listening right now to just take in a deep full body breath and another just inviting yourself to. Slow down a little bit and to be gently aware in this moment of the activity in your mind, the pace and quality of your thinking mind, just noticing. As you notice, you can uh, be reminded that the essence of mindfulness is to meet Our moment by moment experience with curiosity, openness, kindness, and the willingness to be with what is. So we're not judging what we're noticing, we're just noticing. And then continuing to feel your breath in your body, just notice what's happening in this moment with your emotional body. Notice how you're feeling with a little more curiosity letting yourself feel what's here, and notice a little more subtly what's happening in your physical body, not needing to judge anything that's going on. All I'm guiding is a very simple, uh, sacred pause. And each time we pause, we're able to come back just a little more to to our own self. Uh, This can be a way of coming back to our own center, (laughs) It can be a moment, and it may only take a minute to notice if we're starting to get really pulled into unhelpful habit patterns, which we we all do in relationship and conversation sometimes. So whether we're starting to get irritated or um, self-conscious or judgmental or whatever it is, just a pause. If we learn to pause as many times as possible in a day. And if we learn to pause briefly before and during and after our interactions, it's very simple, but it helps us to to shift our attention back to center. Um, I think I'll speak for a minute about deep listening, which is the third principle as well. And oh, oh,
0: I was definitely going to ask you about that one. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, I'm sure this is a very big one in your job <laughs> uh, as a podcast interviewer, but this is really the essence of relational mindfulness. And it's also the essence of, of meditation, uh, learning how to listen at a more deep level, learning how to listen to life as it unfolds moment by moment. I invite people to consider that um, The word listen comes from the root to obey, and so we're often just listening shallowly to our own minds, obeying every thought that goes through, obeying every stressful thought or instruction that comes through. Deep listening is more about dropping into presence, listening from a more uh, conscious, settled place. And from that place, we can be aware of our superficial thoughts. But we can also be aware that they do not have to govern us. So we can be aware of something much more settled and constant in ourselves, too. And then we can question is this thought really true, (laughs) right? So when we're listening to another person, deep listening means listening from full presence, Uh, not just listening to uh, the person's words, but what is beyond the words and listening really as an active. Love or an act of service. I remember once I taught a day-long workshop on deep listening, and a number of um, psychotherapists were there. and And they said, "Oh my gosh! In doing these practices, I've become so aware that." And this is just one branch on the tree of uh, psychotherapy, but they said, "I've become so aware how trained I've been to." Always listen with an agenda of trying to fix, solve, or change the person I'm listening to. So listening and always trying to come up with solutions or answers or to fix them. Or sometimes we notice people listening to us and they want to um, get us out of our pain quickly, if that's what we're expressing. To be listened to generously uh, is something each of us needs so profoundly just that is a healing act. Uh, Just that can bring us to much greater clarity about whatever it is that we're sharing or speaking about. You know, listening is a gift. So in this practice, relational mindfulness, we learn how to listen within and out, uh, both to ourselves and to those we're with, quite frankly, to the world around us. There's a whole uh, section in the book about our relationship with nature, and this applies there too. So we can um, go beyond the mind of separation, so we can drop into a place of more connectedness that is doesn't actually require effort it's It's always here. We've just been very much conditioned, and it's very popular in our culture today to turn our attention away from it. yeah
0: right. oh, absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, and yeah. yeah.
0: So what, what part do you think um, helps foster transparency? What aspects of this?
2: That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. So I always share with people that there's both a receptive and expressive aspect of relational intelligence. We really, very much our society could benefit from people developing and prioritizing more. The receptive aspect of being human, being receptive to each other, listening, uh, allowing space. But equally, we need to develop our uh, more consciously expressive capacity. So the ability to speak our truth, uh, the ability to speak in the moment uh, with honesty. And I'm going to start with the encouragement of... Um, really understanding vulnerability. There's so much out there, more so than there was in the past, about the power of vulnerability, and that's wonderful. And yet a lot of us have been trained to, um, I would say, carry around a set of masks with us because we haven't been given um, as a society or culture that much training in acceptance and self acceptance. Uh, the assumption of judgment exactly and compassion and they go hand in hand. Uh, the assumption that we might get judged or the habit of judging others uh, can be quite deeply ingrained. So people learn to well, instead of expressing myself as I really am right now, I need to monitor and project and try to guess what they want of me and There's a huge uh, depletion that comes from not speaking one's truth, from not having access to one's true voice. So, you know, as an example, early in this interview, I shared about as a young person losing my dad to cancer, and I had so much grief, but I picked up quickly that the grief was not welcome in the culture or school or society I was living in. So I became known as Eden, who was always smiling. And I can tell you uh, much of the time that was a mask, right? So I encourage people to, um, number one, see transparency and honesty as a gift, a gift to yourself and a gift to others. I encourage people to understand that it takes a little time to learn skillful transparency, uh, just like any muscle if you haven't been practicing it for a long time. You might think, oh, I don't know how to say this difficult thing I'm going to say that's going to maybe ruffle someone's feathers in a way that it also deeply exudes kindness. Okay. Um, But that's the balance we're looking at. So number one, to, to be willing to risk it. Number two, to understand that it's actually something that not just you are hungry for, that those around you are hungry for. And it gives other people permission for more of an accepting, transparent uh, exchange, and also to be aware that there are so many moments of trigger that can happen in relationships, in communication, and where many of us have been kind of taught to See those as bad or oh no moments, or my reactivity is coming up. And each of those triggering moments uh, is an invitation for healing, quite frankly. And healing can happen in a split second. But if we turn away from it, that's not possible. If we use the difficulties in the relational field, the people who are most difficult for us, um, the moments when we tend to shut down rather than be able to stay open, we really use those for some investigation, that's a great teacher in becoming more transparent with ourselves, more honest with ourselves, and opening the door to healing. Um, It's so much easier than people think. That's something I want to emphasize on this call. And relational intelligence exists within you. It's not like a set of tools from... Uh, nowhere that you have to learn. It exists within you. Just like meditation helps us to uncover our um, natural intelligence, our sense of wholeness, relational mindfulness helps us to uncover the relational connection and intelligence that already exists. So that's another really great question. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Eden. Well, we certainly appreciate your transparency and honesty with us today, and we appreciate all the time that you've provided. Before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with listeners? Maybe you could let us know about any new projects you have going on.
2: I will share that uh, people can visit my website for more information, and it's my full name, deborahedentoll.com, and I have other books out, as well as a new book in process. And I'm not going to say too much about it. I like to hold projects in stillness as they're gestating. But I will say that what's inspired this new project is that I find that so many uh, spiritual paths and even the world of meditation and mindfulness has been very uh, infused, very affected by so many generations of patriarchy. And so there tends to be an up, up, and away approach to enlightenment um, instead of a down and in towards the body, through the body, through relationships. So I will be writing uh, in some form in this new book about uh, a different paradigm for considering spiritual awakening, that's much more based in a down and in the body approach. I also want to emphasize that um, for those listeners who are interested, I have plenty of retreats and offerings around relational mindfulness and meditation. I have a six-month training for facilitators called the heart of listening that's for people who are in the position to facilitate individuals and groups in different ways and i also have a two-month program coming up called love relationship awakening for those who want to go deeper so thank you so much it's been great talking to you elizabeth